0: Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, a Baptist perspective on history, culture, and theology. I'm Mark West. I'm Matthew Lyon. And today's episode is an interview with Dr. Allison Murray. All right, we have with us today Dr. Allison Murray, special guest. Uh, She received her PhD from the University of Toronto, and specifically in complementarianism and evangelicalism. And her dissertation was called uh, Building a Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So very relevant to the things that are going on in America right now, um, within conservative churches. There's a, a history behind all of this. We sometimes think, and we talked about this, I think, in the last episode, we think we get everything straight from the Bible. But if you don't know your history, you realize you don't realize that this was handed to you from somebody else. And so it's important to understand the context, the culture, the history. And so Dr. Al, uh, Dr. Murray is focused on that she's also the co-editor of um, women in theology where academically trained women discuss theology and so we're excited to hear about that sort of intersection between history and theology which is exactly what this podcast is about is you can't compartmentalize your faith your understanding of faith the history around you and especially in america where those things are so tightly woven together so dr murray how you doing
1: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having
0: me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We haven't met before, so this is a new thing for us. You just finished your dissertation, mm-hmm. and for a lot of our listeners, um, some of them are pursuing PhDs. Some of them are considering higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you just tell us your experience just finishing it, kind of coming out of it? Sure, uh, in, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it so mine took me quite a bit longer than I expected um because when you're doing archival research for history stuff you have to do a little bit of travel so it just took a little more time um but it feels really good to be done so uh, roommates I was living with while I was studying uh, came up with a very helpful metaphor for me which is that like doing a doctorate is like making a lasagna and for part a long period you're just like staring at a pot of water waiting for it to boil and it feels like what is the point of this um this is nothing like my kitchen doesn't. Smell like lasagna. I'm getting none of the good stuff I was expecting. We um, just have to press through because the courses, the language exams, the comps, they're all integral parts of the process, but they can be very discouraging for sure. And so it's okay if it's feeling difficult to get through because um, it's not an easy process as, as you I'm sure yeah. recognize yourself.
0: <laughs> well, that illustration is great. You're just staring at a pot of water waiting for it to boil and thinking to yourself, I've made a mistake.
1: Yeah. This is
0: not what I want to do, not at all. but then it picks up and you just, uh-huh. it, yeah, you're right. The The main thing I learned was don't quit mm-hmm. because it takes forever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then you get on the other side and people call you Dr. So-and-so. Yeah.
1: It's, I'm still really weird. getting used to the title. This is maybe the fourth conversation I've had where it's been used. So it's, it's still good.
0: <laughs> well, I made sure that when I emailed you to always put doctor in front of your name, because I know it's, you worked for a long time. Yeah. I don't know for you. A lot of people try to call me doctor beforehand, like people that you kind of like, oh, you're in the PhD program. You're like, no, no, don't use it yet. We yeah. got to wait till it's it's done. Yeah, yeah that's good. So you uh, were you a resident at Toronto or did you do distance? Uh,
1: no. So I grew up in Toronto. Um, so I'm based in Canada. Okay. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, so I was living there for the last seven years while I was working on my doctorate. Um so it was really good to be back in my hometown and get to know it as an adult because I'd, I'd left to go to a different town for my other degrees.
0: Right. Yeah. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, took me a while to get my PhD too. I think mm-hmm. it took me about, I forget now, probably about six or seven years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Life gets in the way. And it, just, it does. You got to take care <laughs> of stuff. <laughs> um, okay. So you got a degree in history,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which um, I did too. So that's great. What What drew you to that field?
1: Mm -hmm. So I studied, was in the history department at the Toronto School of Theology. So my PhD is in theological studies, uh, Mm -hmm. but with the training of historian. And um, I was drawn to that as opposed to say doing my project in a religious studies department, like a secular religious studies department. Um, The joke being, I said at the time, like when you're in theology, you're allowed to have an opinion about what you're studying. (laughs) Uh, So you don't have to, you know, keep up that Scholarly objectivity piece uh, as much, right? When you're critiquing from within the tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thing that I was studying was something that I was kind of uncomfortable with and like felt like this doesn't sit well with me. I'd like to understand the history of it to uh, see how this came about. Um, And so it felt important to be in a space where I was able to critique uh, the things that I was studying. Um, But just basically I've always been a pretty history nerd kind of person. So Mm -hmm. I was always running for the historical fiction even when I was a really little kid uh, and stuck with history both through my um, BA and my MTS. So it's just a pretty constant thread of interest for me.
0: Yeah. I'd say that's similar to me. I wrote on fundamentalism and so do you know the name John R. Rice?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I, he's in my dissertation.
0: <laughs> he yeah. is my, he is my dissertation. Oh,
1: okay. Maybe I read <laughs> your dissertation in my research then. Oh, well,
0: oh, <laughs> testing. Um, I wrote on fundamentalism and evangelism. Okay. And it was basically an overview of his life um, mm-hmm. because he's a leader, but previous that I was at Westminster Theological Seminary and okay. I wrote my thesis and part of it was on his view of gender. Mm-hmm. Which I haven't read it since then. That was in 2000. Like, I can't remember now. 15. I haven't gone back because I'm. I don't really want to read what I wrote back then. <laughs> but it was specifically on uh, one of the chapters was on his view of complementarianism and gender. Mm-hmm. So you may have come across something I wrote. Mm-hmm. I won't ask you about what you thought or even <laughs> try to remember it, because we all grow as we're learning. We
1: all grow.
0: Yeah. So you, I'm sure you came across John R. Rice because of his book. Bobbed Hair, Bossy Wives, and Women Preachers.
1: Yes, that one. And his one on the home as well. Oh, There's quite a lot of gender stuff in it. Quite a um, lot. Quite a lot. So I, I use Rice as an example to demonstrate how complementarianism was a bit of a shift from the more fundamentalist views about gender that would be in, in Rice. Uh, and he's a bit older. And complementarianism yeah. is so informed and reacting to uh, second wave feminism that someone like Rice like the home was written in, I think in 1946, mm-hmm. um, he, the context is different. So he doesn't have the same sort of, um, what I label like oppositional friction, uh, in which yeah. he's developing his, his ideas. So well, now,
0: now I'm um, actually interested in this topic, whatever we were going to talk about. <laughs> so, yeah. So the way I understood Rice was fundamentally early fundamentalism, which he was, you know, thirties and forties mm-hmm. was coming against a cultural shift that, first wave feminism brought and so they were trying to maintain the sort of traditional way so you're saying complementarianism then took another shift in in what the 70s to react to the second way which rice wouldn't so what would have been the difference there
1: uh so there's a few differences but i'd say the main one is the way that complementarians will always front the position with saying we believe that women are equal or we believe the sexes are equal um and someone like rice um didn't have that presumption like one of my quotes of his in my dissertation is something about how like man is the better creation um so just very bald like men are better yeah. um so in that the way that uh, second wave feminists were protesting against sexism and mistreatment of women and devaluing of women particularly in the public sphere um complementarianism when it's rejecting feminism but doesn't want to seem super Mm. chauvinistic on the surface uh is very quick to say no, we we believe in the equality of these things it's not women don't have to do these things because they're inferior they just have to do them because that's what god said um so they're really trying it you can see that their conversation partners are different in that way
0: so then someone like rice would have been reacting to sort of what women are allowed to do Mm-hmm. But not arguing for their equality. They would have had a lower view of women, mm-hmm. um, more misogynistic. It's funny because I remember arguing specifically against his, his him being misogynistic. Mm. Um, though I now looking back, I would probably change that. <laughs> Sometimes people bring my old stuff up to me and I'm like, oh, maybe you should read the newer stuff.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Things change. That's all right. History. We all have our own personal one, too. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah. History is is the story. as So the history is a story we tell about the past. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the past. Mm -hmm. So then Mm -hmm. older fundamentalists would have assumed, like most of the world, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. that women were inferior to men, but that they could do more than they've been allowed to do.
1: In some way. So, I think, I don't know if you've ever read Betty de Berg's Ungodly Women, some of the mm-hmm. earlier stuff. Um, so, the way that she and um, Margaret Bendroth would kind of frame mm. these historical things is uh, earlier fundamentalists were reframing the Victorian paradigm, yeah. right? And Which was less about equality or worth, but more about like essential natures. And mm-hmm. so um, they were doubling down on the Victorian two spheres dichotomy, uh, but then saying that men could also be super spiritual, because previously in the Victorian system, um, women were religious and men weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're going to, if you want the male to be like the leader of the faith community, you have to make being faithful manly yeah um, so that was kind of how rice and um, some of his contemporaries were yeah
0: yeah one of the, one of the things about rice he pushed that very physical aggressive um, muscular Christianity they would call it he was a football player and he was a horseback rider and he was in the military and there was a big push in fundamentalism to this day and you can if if our listeners are gonna recognize the cowboy themes in their churches and the sports themes that are constantly pushed in fundamentalism. So you're saying that was um, coming from women are good and spiritual and men are just rough and bad. Mm -hmm. And so fundamentalism will say, no way men can be spiritual too, but it's gotta be a real rough and ready, Mm -hmm. tough kind of spirituality. And I think what what our listeners should be hearing here is this is recent. Mm -hmm. This is not even what it's not even modernism. It's, Late modernism, it's just the past 100 years and not the way of Christ or the way of Paul or mm-hmm. the early church or the medieval church or the Reformation church. Mm-hmm. It's specifically American.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so you would you would say that you would push back against that. And what was your main thesis then? In, in the oh, yeah, the main
1: thesis is that um, complementarianism is based – as much, if not more, on American cultural values, uh, particularly the values of the white middle class, um, than it is on biblical insight.
0: Yeah, um, which is so our listeners, because this is going to be this is a really sensitive topic for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Which I'm not trying to make them feel better, but trying to help them get past their discomfort and see the truth. You're not arguing that the Bible is wrong, which is not a historian's job anyway. Mm-hmm you're saying complementarianism does not equal what the Bible says.
1: Yes. Or its its approach to biblical interpretation is quite narrow. Uh, uh, so one of the things I talk about in my dissertation uh, is something, what I kind of snarkily labeled the complementarian microcanon. Uh, so I went through... Uh, particular primary source I was interested in was like trade books. So, you know, mm. you're wild at hearts, you're captivating, your every man's right. battle, right? So the pop theology books that uh, are not necessarily like seminary material, but what you might mm-hmm. have small group discussions about in a congregation or, you know, women's book clubs, those kinds of things. Um, and uh, I went through too many of those in my Mm -hmm. research, but I took about 60 of them and I went through and I made a chart of just every time they referenced scripture and which verses were they using Um, and then built a graph up and uh, really came out that there's about three chapters of the Bible that biblical Mm -hmm. manhood and womanhood are based off of. Um, and that those chapters get used in conversation and analysis like much more than any other parts of the Bible Uh, and then I broke that data down by gender to see like when they're talking about biblical womanhood versus biblical manhood which ones get used more Um, and same thing it was again like the same three sort of chapters uh, came into the conversation more than in other places Um, so it's tricky because it gets put forward, like biblical manhood and womanhood, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as though it is the Bible speaks with one voice to these issues. when the Bible certainly does have a lot of unifying themes, but it also has parts where it's like, well, you could read this chapter or you could read that chapter and get a very Mm -hmm. different opinion. Um, And so to claim exclusive biblical support for this particular view of gender, uh, to me doesn't feel like it does justice to the Bible. And it also doesn't do justice to the ways that we all as humans and as Christians are operating in the world where we do have cultures and histories and perspectives that are informing the way that we read the Bible. And if we don't get better at acknowledging those, we can continue to use the word biblical in ways that are not actually appropriate mm-hmm. to the text.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is really good because when you put biblical in front of something, the assumption is that it's biblical, not cultural. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's fundamentalism has always been. And when I say fundamentalism, I do mean like the classic John Rice, but I think fundamentalism is much broader than independent Baptist or it's Southern Baptist to a degree. It's um, Mm -hmm. someone like John MacArthur is going to be a fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. And also lest our listeners think I'm going liberal, which is the great fear (laughs) uh, fundamentalist. I don't, some people use it this way. It doesn't mean you believe the Bible is true. that's, That's not a good definition of fundamentalism, though some people use it that way. The way we use it is fundamentalism is a spirit, a culture, a way of thinking, an approach to life and to scripture that arose in the basically the 1920s in America. Mm -hmm. And so some people will use it to say, oh, you fundamentalists believe everything in the Bible is true. That's not really the best way. Um, And then others will say, oh, fundamentalists are only those people who are in this group Doing so-and-so. And And really, I think the the better answer is fundamentalists have more of a spirit or a hermeneutic. So um, uh, I lost my train of thought there. Mm -hmm. I got off on fundamentalism. That's what happens (laughs) when you get off on your own topic. It's a
1: rabbit hole. (laughs) I know.
0: Um, Oh, so the culture Mm
1: -hmm.
0: is as much a powerful uh, source of information Mm
1: -hmm.
0: as the Bible. And Mm -hmm. and you're saying, in this case, it's more powerful. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the danger being that you go to culture thinking you're going to the Bible.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, when I looked at where complementarianism came from, there was a few things that I s- could find as sort of historical precursors to it. Um, things that came up were looking at this sort of, I called it in, in, like an inherited tendency to, mm-hmm. to panic about gender. Right. Mm. So we see that a lot with the first wave fundamentalists. So with the people that Deberg studies and that Bendroth Mm -hmm. studies um, people like Rice, right, where they just have a tendency to engage in what sociologists call a gender panic, which is that when a cultural shift is happening, that is um, maybe challenging um, gender roles as they've been assumed to work. um, People can get really nervous and like they'll double down on some sort of expression of a natural gender binary Um, and what and and elaborate on its implications. So it's like, we're worried that this is changing. So let's really fill that in, fill that foundation in. Um, so that's one thing I said that it came from, um, another would be the way that evangelical, um, evangelicals culturally sort of shifted into a conservative political alignment in the starting in the early 70s, but really in the 80s. Um, And that kind of snowballed sort of an anti-feminist view because it was coming both from the political culture that they were engaging in and from the religious culture. So those things together. And then the other is the growth of the Christian publishing industry. Um, So that it's a way to demonstrate how ideas are able to trickle through like a what I call subcultural infrastructure, right? That it isn't just John Rice preaching in Murfreesboro, right? Like we have Mm -hmm. ways that you can develop evangelical celebrity across regions and across denominations, right? So you can have people reading the same books, whether they belong to a Pentecostal church or an independent Baptist church or a Methodist church, right? So you can kind of gather around these Christian books that are evangelical books, (laughs) Um, but that creates this like shared culture uh, in a way that um, was different and growing. Um, from before. Um, And I think that that has led to some really interesting things, like from a church historian's point of view, the fact that there are people who call themselves like reformed charismatics, like makes no sense. (laughs) 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 But partly because of shared ideas, uh, these people are now, you know, these funny bedfellows where these are very different theological streams, but partly through participating a shared value of, of complementarian theology, like bring like charismatics into this like reformed baptist Mm -hmm. you know area um yeah it's like uh i was calling complementarianism is like a lingua franca of of evangelicalism it brings all these people Mm -hmm. kind of together
0: yeah that's and and our listeners will know the books that get recommended around so older books would be something like his needs her needs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um you don't i don't i don't even know who the author of that is like i don't know what his background is but I don't care because it was just given to me by a fundament, independent fundamental Baptist pastor gave it to me, and so the assumption was this is our people, when really you're bringing in people that would normally be outside of your tradition. But the complementarianism, but what you said about the reaction, and I'm a my conviction is fundamentalism is primarily a reactionary movement. You you, you don't have fundamentalism until you have something that to react to, and so it's always reacting to something. And so I believe that fundamentalism arose in the 20s. Most people say in reaction to liberal theology, modernism, which is true, but I think equally to cultural changes like feminism. So when you read John R. Rice, there's a, you said a panic, there's a deep need to respond to something that's changing in America. So then you're saying in the 70s that happened again. Okay. So I have John R. Rice died in 1980. Yeah. So, my <laughs> so
1: probably the highest profile person or people, there's a few, but like James Dobson and Elizabeth mm-hmm. Elliott would be two yeah. of the sort of early on the ground people that I identify as really um, affecting or as evidence of this like newer movement where they're responding particularly to second wave feminism um, and using their celebrity in the evangelical world um publishing books they're respected faith leaders um and their ideas get picked up again and again um so i still find people who are writing in you know 2008 are frequently quoting elizabeth Elliot from 1976 yeah Um, so they continue to have this really big impact through through the decades um yeah so like as the conversation partners change the articulation around the the gender stuff also adapts
0: could you just uh, quickly summarize first, second, third wave feminism? Because oh. that, that wasn't, yeah. That,
1: sure. Um, for,
0: for our listeners, of yes, course. of
1: course. <laughs> Happy to. <laughs> uh, so broadly speaking, um, I use a historical definition of feminism uh, put forward by someone named Karen often. And she says that a feminist is someone who recognizes that there's gender inequality uh, and wants to fix it um, and that that can take the um, sort of a thought based approach and an activism based approach. So, um, both of those kind of work together generally with first wave feminists, um, the sort of narrowing it down version <laughs> would be, uh, it was a bunch of white ladies who were tired of not having political say. Um, and, um, we see many women who had been involved in the abolition movement and really kind of got a taste for public speaking for, uh, affecting political change, um, and saw that there was things in the world that they didn't like, um, and they wanted to have more of a say, uh, particularly at the ballot box. Um, so you had a lot of them appealing to this like essential nature of women. Like if women can vote, we won't have war anymore because of their maternal hearts. Uh-huh. Or if, if women can vote, we'll get prohibition passed because women are affected more by alcohol abuse. Um, so a lot of uh, the story we tell about first wave femi- feminism o- often is that it was a quest for the vote and that as soon as the vote came, then it died. Um, This is a bit of an oversimplification, but that's one way to remember it. First wave feminism appeals to essentialism and wants the vote. Um, Second wave feminism pops up um, a bit later. Um, Again, as first wave feminism was tied to abolitionism, a lot of second wave feminism is tied to the civil rights movement. Um, so as, um, black people, African-Americans are advocating for more rights, a lot of women are also like, Hey, we don't get treated very well. And Hey, there's some laws that are also, um, making it hard for us to flourish in society. And so, um, this particular quality, even though they were able to vote, but there are still things like, you know, you couldn't get a bank account unless your husband signed up for it, or like you could be, you know, not paid enough in your job, which is still a problem. Um, So second wave feminism was more tried to um, challenge this idea that women's role was based on innate female characteristics. So they really abandoned this idea of an essentialism. And it was more liberal in the broad sense. um, This idea that it's like women can do what men can do, right? We are capable of these things. And so the argument actually forced a downplaying of the differences between men and women, because those were used as barriers to women's participation in full society, right? You can't be the executive because women are too emotional. You can't Mm. do these things because women are too this or whatever. So it was um, a rhetorical switch from the first wave, right? Downplay the differences instead of emphasize them. Uh, And then third wave kind of realizes that neither of these strategies is super effective, right? That we need to uh, embrace femininity because to say like, oh, the best women are the ones who are the most like men Mm. is like a bit of a problem too. So the third wave comes around and kind of complicates things a bit, like tries to uh, reclaim feminine things while still pressing for women's rights. So the idea that like, it's not that I have to make myself a man to be successful, but I should be taken seriously despite the fact that I'm wearing a dress and have Mm -hmm. a feminine voice Um, and, yeah, it, it goes from there. Some people would say we're in a fourth or even a fifth wave now. Um, and then some historians uh, who I really appreciate like Nancy Hewitt, uh, she talks about how the wave metaphor is a bit of a problem because it causes us to think in like discrete, easily definable periods and not see the interplay between them. Um, and it also causes people to like overemphasize difference and not see the continuities. Yeah. So, she suggests replacing it instead of like ocean waves where one comes up and gets rid of the next one, to see it as like radio frequencies or radio waves. So, there's different radio stations that are like, you know, local, low and slow. There's some that are national, big and loud, and that they're kind of like all crisscrossing at, at times. And so, certain stations, you know, would reformat or go out of business, but then another one pops over there. Um, so, re-frami- reframing feminist waves is an edited volume that would be worth looking yeah. at if someone was curious.
0: Yeah. Um, well, this is what historians are good for. History is more complicated than we want it to be. Yes. We always want my illustration is what started world war one. We want that one incident yes. that one guy got shot in what Eastern Europe and that started it. But in reality, you can't divide anything that e- easily. Mm-hmm. And it teaches us that when you want to understand one thing, you have to understand a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. And so What would you say, and maybe it's a little bit more of opinion, which is fine, expert opinion, what were fundamentalists reacting to? Because the way you presented that as sort of what women wanted doesn't really seem that problematic, right? They want the vote. Um, They want to be treated equally. They don't want to have to become a man to become successful. But the reaction doesn't come across that way. There's a much more strong reaction. So what were fundamentalists reacting to when they saw feminism
1: yeah and i and i don't think it was just the fundamentalists. like to be Mm -hmm. nuanced about that too right so a bunch of non-fundamental evangelicals and a lot of secular society too like like feminists either um but the main things it's like what is someone saying and then what does someone hear right so i think that this is a conversation where people are not listening well to one another generally so People hear like women can do what men can do, and then people say that someone hears it and thinks, oh, you're saying men and women are the same. Um, right. Or that this idea that uh when people were advocating for women to have more options in say paid wage market, um there people are hearing, oh, so it's not good enough to stay home and raise your kids? Mm. Right, like this. Uh, they're they're taking a critique or that saying that like I want these things for myself as a rejection of the things that people really valued. So this conversation kind of comes where compliment people who the way complementarians talk about feminists is you'd think that feminists are a bunch of like super arrogant, super selfish, like androgyny seeking monsters <laughs> who want nothing more than for all women to be lesbians and for everybody to get abortions all the time. And
0: that's about uh, what it was presented right, like to. And, and, they, and they hate men.
1: And they hate men. Right. <laughs> uh, and I mean, certainly just as yeah. you can find any Christian that has any opinion, sure. <laughs> you can find feminists that, that fit that. But it isn't necessarily a fair thing. Right. To take the most extreme as the example of the core. So just like I would not like someone like John R Rice to represent yeah. me as a Christian, right? It's um, not fair to take the caric- caricature uh, and make that the considered norm, right? So feminists were asking for things like, hey, We'd like to be able to initiate divorces, right? We would like to be able to take out a loan without our father or our husband signing off on it, right? We, we would like equal pay for equal work, right? Um, we want to have, you know, maternity leave, which is something that we were successful at getting in Canada. You guys are still working on it down there, um, right? So uh, I think that the, the aims of feminism and then the perceived aims of feminism are quite different in the, in yeah. these conversations. Um, so if any time a woman is asking for more rights or more considerations, it's considered an act of arrogant selfishness um, and an act of like defying femininity, then yeah. it's hard to be in a good conversation about what that is.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so what you see is a, an emo, I want to say an emotional reaction from men because men are emotional too, to fear of, And this is my perception of it being both studying it and being within it, a fear that the foundation of your life, reality, faith, understanding of the world is being attacked. And when something is being attacked that you hold to be essential, you get this reaction that I think really shapes a movement. And so I would up until maybe right now have labeled myself a complementarian because I don't know another word to use. Like, there's there's only two options: egalitarian or complementarian, and that's the only things you can choose between. And you're like, well, I don't. Okay, I guess I'll choose one. Um, but it's the reactionary, the fear that you're losing something that's essential. And then when you fear something, you att- you you respond with defensiveness. And when it becomes a war between you and this enemy trying to destroy you, then you look for characters that are evil and i think that's where you see the sort of um the worst case scenario the feminist who wants to get rid of men Uh because if you can find that as the enemy then you can rally behind and say okay we need to defend ourselves against this monster you don't want to find just a normal woman who just wants the normal things yeah Um, and i think fundamentalism is often maybe essentially the nature of fundamentalism is finding an attack to respond to enemies to fight and all labeling it in sort of the greatest danger to our age. Uh And as a historian, this is not opinion because you go back and you read the literature and you see that kind of language. And that's the, that's the thing about being a historian is you got to have sources, you got to show your work. Uh And it's, which is why it's essential that you have historians doing this kind of work and not as, and this is the difference between, say, maybe a theologian and a historian. You're not trying to change people's faith. You're trying to show what is, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's what people, especially pastors and Christians, they don't really often want people to show what is. They want people to defend and, and bolster their support. Mm-hmm. So, um, l- let me talk a little bit about your other work with history and theology. So, so you co-editor your co-editor of Women in Theology, mm-hmm. which obviously from your research, it seems like a, a, a obvious um, way to to live this out. But how would this be different than your strictly historical work? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I would say Women in Theology is a collaborative academic blog, uh, and it existed before I was involved with it. So mm-hmm. uh, it came out of. Um, a bunch of female divinity students, I believe at Notre Dame, a little over 10 years ago now. And um, since then it sort of cycled through, it's had a lot of grad students. um, And then a lot of some people have stayed on as they've gone into the academy. Um, And just sort of a a place for a bunch of different, it started quite Catholic, but it's now quite ecumenical and um, started as a place where it was good to like tease out little ideas, right? It's maybe not necessarily a course paper for that or it's you know something you got interested in while you're studying for your comps and you wanna think a bit more about it. Um, it's just sort of up to give more people a platform to get their theological voices out there. Um, and uh, I think in, at least in the humanities theology is maybe second behind philosophy in terms of its lack of gender parity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so like my incoming cohort at uh, Toronto School of Theology was 38 students and three of us were women. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a pretty low stat. Uh, yeah. Certainly there are other women there and I have female friends, but the cohort class that I started in was very male dominated.
0: Just as um, a, I was at Southern Seminary, which you would think would be different, but there were probably 12 in mine and one woman. Mm -hmm. so it's the same across Mm -hmm. a sort of american thing i guess Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yeah so it it's um it's a thing there so the idea being that there's still a struggle for uh women's voices to um, sort of be heard in the theological academy so that this Mm -hmm. blog was a way to you know build a community that made it easier right so it's not just about one person having the best hot takes about whatever issue right but that we can share the load of that. And uh, some of us would post things that other people disagree with, um, mm-hmm. but that, that's part of the scholarly conversation that we're having. And um, this idea that you can make your theology public, right? So that mm-hmm. this like a podcast like this is public theology. This blog is also public theology. Um, it's a different way to engage in our scholarship.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got two more things. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of that. One, I wanna ask you about specific people and just where they fall into the, into this world. But and I also want to just whether our listeners, I actually don't know the demographics of our listeners. I don't know how many are women, but I know that all the men who listen have wives or daughters or just kind of speak to the women who would not feel like history is for them mm-hmm. um, because of whatever cultural reasons. But we'll say that to the end. So someone like Amy Bird. Mm-hmm. Um where would you put her in, into this conversation?
1: Mm-hmm. I think she's um, a very interesting person. I haven't had a chance to read her whole book yet, yeah. but my understanding is that she is critiquing gender segregated ministry while maintaining a complementarian position on women in leadership in the church, um, being that women are not supposed to be leaders in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that to be a really interesting place to, to launch a critique of the gender siloed ministries. Um, so, as my understanding, she would maybe be a critical complementarian, but still a complementarian. Um, yeah, because I don't think she's come out and said that she's a feminist.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, everyone else has called her that, but
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah.
0: She's well, she she's catching even as you say she's still within this sort of conservative complementarian camp. Mm-hmm. If you if you especially recently, the kind of attacks have been leveled against her um, just for sort of daring to defy the traditional, uh, have been pretty bad.
1: Um, yeah. Very pointed. And even when it's traditional, like how fast does something have to be before it's the tradition, right? So she's critiquing a gender segregated ministry mm-hmm. approach, which is itself like a pretty new thing. Yeah. Um, and so I think the short memory for all people, but particularly for evangelical Christians, um, we can really quickly get to a place where we think that what is is what always was because we're not paying enough attention to change over time.
0: Yeah, which is why people should read your dissertation.
1: Yes, sure. That's why you should publish it.
0: (laughs) If you publish that, I don't know the market for it, but within our little circle, there would definitely be a market for okay. it because you're speaking I'll put, directly I'll put to
1: that on the book proposal. <laughs> so when
0: you were saying, look, go to these, these independent Baptist people, because they, they would be interested. There's a couple, you know, yeah. dozen of them who would buy it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> uh, so Amy Bird is sort of branching out to something new. You would say mm-hmm. it's still within a complementarian um, realm, but doing something new within that. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I would say she's changing, kind of figuring it out, too, as she goes. Um, but yeah, it's, I think the main point here is that, as a, as a historian, this stuff is new. And as a Christian, when you hear the word new, that's a red flag. And that doesn't mean it's wrong, but when our faith is 2,000 years old and now something's new, that should be the warning sign not the other stuff that we're told is a warning sign. And so historians, your job is to show us what was. And so we get, we know where we stand today. And I mean, this topic, the fact that, you know, who John R. Rice is, nobody ever, no historians ever know. That's why I wrote my dissertation on him. Cause you know, how you gotta do original research. And so it's like, okay, what am I going to write on that no one's written on? No one's, it was like, this is easy. Even my professors were like, I don't know anything about this guy. Like, so my dissertation defense and, and for our listeners, a defense is where you go. Well, at least for me, you go before your your the chairs of your department, and they grill you, and you have to defend the the argument that you made, the new argument, and they try to poke holes into it. Depending, were your how how was yours? Was it were they nice or they tough? It went
1: okay, actually. So I think okay. that they've they've uh, humanized the process a bit in, in ah, okay. years. So uh, things like I got my external examiner's report in advance of the dissertation defense. So I yeah. had, could anticipate their questions. Um, but yeah, it went, it went pretty well overall, but I was yeah. still very nervous. <laughs>
0: oh, I, I, I remember everything about that day and it was not fun, but yeah, I got mine too. I think when our professors talked to us, they'd refer back to theirs, which was you know, in the seventies or before, mm-hmm. and it was grueling and it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Mine was pretty good. They were, there were some hard questions, but if you knew your subject, it was all right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, you're defending the, the new argument that you made. So, so doing Rice uh, when you do something that people don't know about. So the, mm-hmm. but he was, and people fade so fast out of out of public memory. Within our circles, Rice was was very influential, and even was outside of our circles. Mm-hmm. And so that was only. I mean, he died a year before I was born, and people don't even know his name. But his books shaped someone like um Dobson for sure. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth yeah. Elliot who then shaped people like, you know, Josh Harris or whoever the the later ones were. So, um okay, then just encourage any women who are listening or men who want to help women to pursue history.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that history is definitely for you because you are a product of it. So, everyone has a history and whether that's you're studying your own personal genealogy or your own like genealogy of faith. Um, it's important to know those things to know where you're coming from. Um, and same way that we would say for pastors, particularly um, right. Historical information helps you be a Bible, bebo- better biblical interpreter, right? So you understand what Jesus is saying when he says, carry the pack, the extra mile. If you understand the history and the context of the Roman empire that helps you read the Bible better. And I think knowing history, particularly of faith, um, helps us interpret the world better. Um, And we should pull those things together. Uh, And then on top of that, we should consider what histories we consider to be interesting. Right. I think that people will sometimes find the history of their own denomination super interesting, uh, particularly when it shows like this you know, embattled minority said no to the Anglican church and then mm-hmm. you know, became Baptist. Um, but realizing that um, the people who are heroes of the faith are also human um, and that they were shaped by their context too, right? So all theology is also a product of history. So we should know where that came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly and um, a moment like we're talking a little bit about like what does it mean to be a woman in history and I still don't have a great answer to that question but I do remember being very depressed uh, at the um, American Academy of Religion so the big like scholarly conference um, that happens every most years when COVID isn't on Um, and being in this book fair and at a um, particular press's booth they had uh, a new volume out that was like a tomb like three to four inches thick like christians from history you should know it was like 50 famous christians or something like that uh and it was like all white men yeah <laughs> it's like really you yep. this much sick you know <laughs> that many inches of book and you didn't have room to look at one woman who might have influenced the faith mm-hmm. um That seems a bit suspicious to me Mm -hmm. uh, and sad. So I would say for male pastors who are trying to evaluate the way that they teach, um, to ask yourself, like when you're studying history or when you're putting a historical example into a sermon, like how often is the hero of that history a man? And when are you remembering to tell women's histories? right? And um, for women who are wanting to develop their historical literacy um, there's a, so many great books <laughs> and blogs uh, to read um, and it can be really empowering right like when we learn that certain things even about the way we see ourselves are historically contingent for, like for me that's been like a big process of like empowerment like oh people used to tell a different story about how this worked I don't like the story we're telling now so we can like Tell a new story, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which, yeah. in many ways, is the heart of the gospel, right? Telling a different story about humanity and about yeah. the fate of the world. So, I think we have the skills as Christians to be good historians um, there, and that it is should be a good part of faith practice um, to be to try to develop some historical literacy alongside our Bible biblical literacy um, and prioritizing those things together.
0: Yeah, well, that was good. Um... I love talking. To, I I forget what it's like to talk to fellow historians <laughs> when you're you know in your because I've been out of it. I'm a pastor now, and so I don't. I'm not in, sort of active in that circle. But you remember, like, oh, that's right. We, we speak the same language. Like yeah, this is what's I important. Don't. Well, even, <laughs> even telling stories. And-
1: <laughs> the historian in the the theology department. There's very like because most people, if they want to be a historian, they go to a history department. Uh, So the number of of people who are doing historical topics within my faculty, was like pretty small.
0: Yeah. Uh, So
1: (laughs) I remember a good friend of mine, uh, he's from Colorado, he was giving a a presentation at our graduate student conference and it was in like theological philosophy, something much more abstract than I tend to deal with. And I went up to him after and I was like, can I just clarify your main thesis was the fact that this person came from a particular time, had an impact on their ideas <laughs> like yes, like, okay. <laughs> In history, that's just a given. That's not that's, that's just it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that is history. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why what? else would you yeah. do history if that wasn't true? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah. it's it's true that there's, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes people don't realize and and what it takes to become a historian. So you know, you're fresh off even things like comps. If you don't know what that means, that means you sit for a long time and answer really long questions to prove that you're an expert in the field. Um, how long were your comps?
1: Uh, so, our system is a bit different, I think. So, I wrote mine in exams. Uh, yes.
0: Yeah. Say, I exams, did say. I had, yeah. I
1: think it was a four hour and two and a half hour, mm-hmm. and then a two hour oral defense.
0: So, I actually didn't have to, oh, so for the dissertation?
1: Uh, no, two oral or defense for the comprehensive. Oh,
0: so, I did actually have to do the oral. Uh, defense. Ooh. Yeah. So I, I miss that one. So, but it took, um, I think mine was about six hours. Mm-hmm. You just, we, they had a, a room with computers and we all sat in there and answered. I think we had three oh, questions.
1: Okay. Now ours, just, ours are all solo. Cause everyone's on uh, kind of their own timetable. So it was just like me in a boardroom on a school laptop, like oh. <laughs> typing away without access to the internet for.
0: Yeah. I think that's what I did. Yeah. So what, what, for our listeners, they give you a question. I think one of mine was like, what was the effect of the monarchy on Anglicanism Mm -hmm. in the 1500s? And then you just write for like an hour on that subject from just what you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then for us, they gave us prep. They're like, here's the prep. Here are 10 pages of books to read. So you'll know everything you need to know. So anyway, that's just an example of what it takes to become a historian. And reading a book doesn't make you an expert. And so like you said, you you had 60 books. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, and I think what a historian does is they read all the books. And so an expert in a field reads everything and then talks from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And so history is accessible to everybody, but we just need to remember that there are people who devote themselves to history for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that helps us a lot. Okay. So people want to follow you, which I've already started following you. Mm-hmm. And um, cause you're, your field is similar to my field. Uh, so they can follow you uh, on Twitter. Correct. Mm-hmm. What's your Twitter handle? It's
1: at A E Murray, M U R R A Y. And then HOC for history of Christianity.
0: Okay. And then also at the women in theology, which yep. is I think at women in theology, yep.
1: so that's the Twitter account for the blog. You can also subscribe to the blog. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, Okay. I mm-hmm. haven't done that yet. Yeah. And then, um, I'm already thinking like, man, we should do like a Zoom conference next year on this kind of stuff. And, you know, John R. Rice and, even, you know, mm-hmm. complementarian evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. So anyway, no, we thank you for coming on. This is this has been, honestly, it's been one of my favorite interviews because it's talking about the same stuff that I studied. Um, it's a little bit of sort of like when you're a nerd about something and you find somebody else like, oh, let's oh talk about the same thing. So I really appreciate this. Um, I'm glad we got connected. And so I encourage our listeners to follow her as a perspective that is similar or is a field that's similar to ours, but kind of a different perspective, Mm -hmm. which is always a good thing. And then if you're a woman, uh, you should become a historian. (laughs) that's a bit prescriptive
1: that's a take that's the (laughs) takeaway
0: listen to this man telling you what to do (laughs) or
1: maybe if I could give like one precise action would be just to like develop some like history spidey sense so particularly I notice in literature that people will quickly use like comparison to the past as a way to differentiate from the present so it's like Mm. oh so many people today do this used to not happen and we will do the better thing like what was done before Um, and often this is nostalgic A historic nonsense. Um, So if you notice in a sermon that someone is making appeals to the past, but they're not like backing it up in any way, they're probably using an idea of the past that's not accurate to get you to feel a particular way. And so if you know your history, you can like see when that is happening more. Mm -hmm. Um, So just like pay attention (laughs) to when that's
0: happening. That is excellent practical advice because- I hear that all the time. And now I'm trying to think of my last sermon. I probably did that too.
1: <laughs> like I get it. It's not not to not to demonize people who do this, right. uh, but that it is it is a rhetorical device that I think often makes us develop um, a historical perspective that's right. not super rich.
0: Um, yeah. When someone appeals to something without showing their work, um, well, it's, you know, to put it for our pastors, when Paul brought the information to the Bereans and said, here's what we should be doing. They went back and they checked the sources and the Bereans, they said, we're more noble. So when you hear someone say the past or this is how it used to be, or we should make America great again,
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you want to check the sources on that.
1: You want to check the sources on that for sure. Yeah. You
0: want to uh, know and, what, what's going on there. Yeah.
1: yeah. What's going on. And is it an accurate portrayal of the past? Like, I think this happens mm-hmm. a lot with like sexual morality stuff. Like people will talk about, mm-hmm. I remember so many sermons was like, nobody ever used to ever do this. And now it's just suddenly become right. normal in this modern. It's like, well, at the industrial revolution about half the population of Paris was born out of wedlock. It's right. so, like, it's not, which isn't to say like, and so now everything is fine, but it's just like, you're basing your argument off of a historical inaccuracy. And that is right. a red flag.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're pursuing truth and Mm -hmm. truth about the present and truth about the past. Yes. All right. Good way to put it. Yeah. uh, Dr. Murray, thank you. And hopefully uh, we'll connect with you again. And um, this has been great. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast.historyandhope.com or
1: message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast
0: app of your choice. And go rate... And review our podcast. Our last review was very bad, so we need some uh, some good reviews to balance that out.